0: Well, we are in a new series in uh, the Gospel According to John, and uh, we're just in our third sermon. We're in chapter 2, and as we begin chapter 2 this morning, I kind of want to locate us just a little bit. Uh, I want to note that chapters 2, 3, and 4 form a unit. They form a literary unit in which John shows Jesus to be the one who fulfills the Old Covenant and brings the New Covenant into place. And uh, John uses some grammatical markers that we can see as, uh, as kind of bookends, on this. If, if we were to look at, just a minute, uh, this section begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in Cana, where Jesus performs his first sign, and his disciples believe in his glory. And if we were to go to the end of this section, which is the last verse, or, or, or actually verse 46 of chapter 4, we would see that Jesus returns to Cana, he performs his second sign, and the man, who was an official, believes in his word. So we have those those similar things going on that are bookends to this section. And, and throughout this section, the term or the theme of the third day is very important. It's very important. Uh, in chapter 2, the wedding and Jesus' first sign happen on the third day. In chapter 4, Jesus departs from the Samaritans, who now believe in him, on the third day. And chapter 4 ends with Jesus' second sign, which is to heal the official son from near death, and it's done on the third day. And so we have this this third day theme. And in between these two bookends, what happens in the middle, uh, Jesus tells unbelieving Nicodemus that he must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom who must increase as he decreases. Jesus explains to a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well that he's the greater than Jacob, and many in her town believe because of him, and showing that the gospel is going to all the nations, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, which the Samaritans are. So lots going on in these verses, and all these things take place just, just like the story kind of plays out, but remember this about John's gospel. There is saving truth on the surface of John's gospel, but a deeper and richer faith is to be had when we plumb its depths. And So let's plumb the depths of John chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 2, and then we will and we'll talk about it. This is the Word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's nothing uh, particularly significant about the hillside town of Cana, but there was something significant about weddings, and there was something significant about the third day. There are many references to the third day in the Old Testament, Just a few of them. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. And on the third day, God provided a substitute sacrifice. It was at the end of three days that Joshua led the people into the promised land. In Hosea chapters 5 and 6, Hosea describes Israel's exile like being put to death. But he describes their being released from his exile like a resurrection that happens on the third day. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and then released. Esther entered the king's chambers to plead for Israel's life on the third day, and they were saved. On the third day, something old is always gone and something new always comes. And the new thing that comes always has to do with God granting redemption. God granting restoration, God giving new life to his people. The third day here on the surface is the third day after the four momentous days we looked at last week in chapter 1. Remember, there was a day, and then there was the next day, and the next day, and the next day, four days. And so this third day means you add three days to that, and you get a total of seven days, which is a complete week. But going deeper than the surface, John is... John is using this symbolically to set a mood, to set a tone. The significance of it being the third day at the end of a complete week is the mood of completion and the aroma of new life. The very first sentence alone in chapter 2 is meant to give us a sense of expectation that the old covenant has been fulfilled and the new covenant has come, and that new covenant That that aroma of the new covenant has, has the smell of life. You know, it was also on the morning of the third day that God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. That covenant relationship. And God understands his covenant to be a marriage covenant between himself and his people. In Jeremiah 31, God refers to it as my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband. And he calls their covenant unfaithfulness adultery. But Hosea, in chapter 2 of Hosea, in there, God promises in the future, I will betroth you to me forever. God sees his covenant as a marriage covenant with his people. We understand from the Old Testament Scripture The old covenant which Israel broke would be replaced by a new covenant for all the nations. We know that. And we know from John's book of Revelation that the consummation of all things would be a wedding feast for all who are called. So on a deeper level, John is preparing us to see Jesus fulfill the old covenant by bringing a new covenant at a third day wedding in Cana. That's the setting. We're not given much detail about the day's events. We don't even know the names of the man and woman being married. I mean, you'd think you'd know that, right, when you go to a wedding. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is somehow involved in the wedding, perhaps perhaps their family. What John wants us to see is what Jesus does. He wants us to come and see greater things, just as he told Nathaniel. This wedding, it may be a week-long event... And they've run out of wine. This is a terrible mistake. A week long wedding, they've run out of wine. It's going to bring shameful embarrassment on this family to have not provided for their guests. It would be something that they never lived down for the rest of their days in that town. This is what's going to happen if somebody doesn't do something quickly. So Mary requests that Jesus do something. They have no wine. Is not a statement of fact. It's an appeal for Jesus to fix it. When my wife says, my car is making a funny noise, it's not just a statement of fact. She wants me to fix it. I can't say, honey, what does that have to do with me? Not safely. But Jesus says that. Jesus rebuffs his mother. Now, reading into this just a little bit, but I think it's reasonable. I think Mary remembers what the angel said to her before Jesus' birth. I think she's heard about the Spirit at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. She sees that he's no longer acting like a carpenter. He's acting like a rabbi, and there are disciples following him. And so she adds all this up, and she presumes upon her special son, to do something special. and We can see where she's coming from. But notice that Jesus, whose Father is God, will not be presumed upon. Will He? Not even by His mother. He says, My hour has not yet come. Referring to His death, burial, and resurrection. That hour will come, but it has not come yet. Mary, we see, plainly, has no effect on what Jesus does. His timetable is his father's timetable, and it will not be altered, not even by Mary. And realizing this, Mary responds with great humility and trust. She simply tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. These servants were to do whatever she said to do. But she tells them to do Whatever Jesus decides to tell them, which is what we should all do, isn't it? We should not presume upon Jesus, but humble ourselves and do whatever he tells us to do. I wonder if there are times in your life when it seems as if the wine has run out and you're on the spot. You're in a jam and you need help fast. When you turn to Jesus, and I assume that you do, when you turn to Jesus, do you presume upon him? Telling him what he has to do to make things right as you see them. Or do you see your circumstances as an opportunity in your life For Jesus to step in and show you and everyone around you that he is enough. Mary, now corrected, responds with complete confidence in Jesus. She's not mad. She's not sulking. She responds with complete confidence in Jesus. Do you have complete confidence in Jesus? Have you ever gone to Jesus in one of these tight spots, and felt rebuffed like Mary when things don't resolve the way you want them to. The next time that happens, here's what you should do. Accept his correction. Humble yourself before him. Trust him to do what he says. Do what he says. Let him, let him do what he wills Because that is Jesus doing God's will in the long-term, and therefore in successive short-terms, exactly what you want Him to do anyway, isn't it? So John has set up this question with this interaction. What does this wedding, where the wine is run out, have to do with Jesus? John wants us to see how Jesus responds. He's going to show us something here. And he responds with the beginning of his signs. The Synoptic Gospels refer to these miracles as miracles or mighty works. John always refers to them as signs. In other words, they have a purpose. They're signs that point to something greater. In his coming, Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and is bringing the new covenant. The six stone water jars are not for drinking water. They're for hand washing, according to the old, custom, old Covenant ceremonial rules of purification. Jesus tells the servants to fill them to the brim, and they do. Jesus tells them to draw some water, or to draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. They do. And he tastes the water that Jesus has transformed into wine, and he can't believe it. He thought the early wine was good. But this later wine is even better. In fact, (laughs) it's the best by far. Which is the reverse order of how it's done at every other wedding. All this time people had been drinking freely of what they thought was the good wine. But it's only now that the good wine has actually been made available, has actually been served. And this was the first or the beginning of Jesus' signs, which John says manifested his glory. And his disciples believed. <clears throat> so, on the surface, Jesus has the power and authority to transform water to wine, which we should believe. Because in chapter 1, we learned that Jesus is the Word of God through whom everything was created in the beginning. He has the authority and the power to create and to transform what he has created. That's good. That's important to believe. But is that all John means when he writes that this sign manifested Jesus' glory? A parlor trick with the wine? Is that the very glory of the Father that the disciples have seen in the glory of the Son? Is that the grace upon grace that the disciples receive from Christ's fullness? These are things that John said in John, John chapter 1. See, I think John is writing in such a way for us to look deeper than the surface to see that what he is reflecting on as he writes about this 50 years after the event. Remember, I'm, I'm dating this in 80 to, 80 to 85 AD. He's looking back. This isn't so much a video of Jesus' life as it is a full-fledged documentary. John's, John's an old man now. John's seen the church grow now. John's grown in his understanding of theology and who Christ is and what it is that God's doing. And he's he's visibly watching the the old covenant go away and Jesus bring the new covenant. And he's bringing that all into this gospel for us as we go along so that we would see it and that we would know it and that we would believe. So John's writing so that we would see all of these things in deeper Deeper meaning. The six stone jars used for Old Covenant purification, they're filled up to the brim. That's a sign of completeness. What God intended for the Old Covenant rites of purification is completed. They've run their course. They're done according to Jesus' command to the servants. And from them, Jesus has the servants draw out something new and better by the word of His command. And what do they draw out? Not water. New wine. And how much wine do they they have for this wedding celebration now on the third day? These are not six serving pitchers. These are six stone hand-washing jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, of the best wine, together holding 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine from which the celebrants may now drink freely from it. In Genesis chapter 49, you're going to have to think back to our series in Genesis, Jacob describes the blessing, God's blessings promised to Abraham will come through the line of his son Judah as an abundance of wine. Remember, he says there'll be, there'll be so much wine in that day that you won't even stop your, your donkey's colt from lapping it up. Because there's just so much. So much wine that you'll wash your clothes in it. And, and it's a wine that has these qualities. It won't stain your teeth, and it'll bring a rich color to your eyes. That's what, that's what Jacob described this, this new covenant age as being. A bounty of wine. The prophet Amos uses the same imagery to point to the messianic age yet to come in Amos 9, 13 through 15. Here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord their God. You see, this is the grace upon grace. In chapter 1, verse 16, that John says, we have received from the fullness of Jesus. The old covenant was a marriage Between Yahweh and Israel. And at a wedding in Cana on the third day, the wine ran out. The old covenant had been exhausted. But from it, something new and better has been drawn. Like moving from water to wine, God's people move from old covenant to new covenant. Jesus is bringing this new age into place at the right time, at the fullness of time in order to fulfill all righteousness. You should recognize those verses. At the same time, wedding in Cana, on the third day, Jesus, the bridegroom, made the best wine in overabundance. This is the sign that the new covenant has come. The Messiah is here. That the glory of God has been manifested in Jesus. The law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John opened his gospel with. And his disciples believed in him. This is what the disciples believed about Jesus. That he is indeed the glory of the Father. The true word of the Father and the Messiah who has fulfilled the law of God, and who brings the new covenant age of blessing in himself. That's the glory they have believed. Now, they don't believe it entirely, and they don't believe it perfectly, but they're beginning to, is what John is saying. That's what they see. That's what they're believing. (coughs) Before we move on, I want to make, just, just by way of application, I've already mentioned... The fear and anxiety, when we see the wine running out in our circumstances, using that as a, as a picture, when we feel the pressure mounting upon us, we may respond in fear. <laughs> like that family, <laughs> when they realized that their reputation was mud, when they ran out of wine. When you see that coming upon you, we may respond in fear, we may respond in unbelief. Or we may even respond with a temptation to sin in order to get the outcome that we want. And I think there's reason why we might go there. The reason is as old as sin itself. See, Satan wants you to think that God's holding out on you, doesn't he? That's what he told Adam and Eve God's holding out on you, he won't let you eat that tree. John has made it clear that God is not holding out on you. In fact, God is layering good gifts upon good gifts to you so that at the right time you may receive his very best gifts. What you need most when you're in a jam is to behold the glory of Christ, which is what these disciples are beholding. He's right here in John chapter 2. He's not just a miracle worker. When you go, God, I need a miracle. He is the fulfillment of God's law and the bringer of God's grace. Believe in him. Satan is a liar. God is not holding out. Jesus is layering grace upon grace upon you and your life, if you're his. There's one more thing we need to see and respond to strongly in this passage, and it's no small thing in our day and age. It's not an accident that Jesus appears and gives his first sign at a wedding. I hope you're already getting that, when God sees a covenant as a wedding. From the beginning, God designed the marriage covenant to picture his relationship with his people. The mystery of marriage is that it is a sign pointing to Jesus and his people. That's what it is. This sign is intensified and specified in the New Covenant, such that Paul writes in Ephesians, "...therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh from Genesis before the fall." This mystery is profound, he says in the New Covenant, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and his church. Marriage was not devised by man, but given by God. Marriage is not a mere social construct, but an ever-present sign in every culture around the world pointing to the New Covenant relationship between Jesus Christ and his church through the gospel. God's intention from the beginning is to communicate this through marriage. When that crafty serpent of old slithered into the garden and opened his mouth, he attacked marriage. You remember the results. And he continues to do so today. Satan has made it controversial to talk about marriage. He's working against the new covenant, he's working against the gospel by perverting marriage into what some call so-called same-sex marriage. Marriage is God's institution. Marriage is a biblical category for us to think in. The civil authority has rejected God's authority but the church cannot. Not even after man passes his laws not when they trip into God's domain. We must uphold marriage by listening and loving and remaining close to one another as husband and wife in our marriages. We're called to maintain Jesus' own endorsement of marriage that we see at the wedding of Cana. We must go on fighting We're going to have to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and hold up the shield of faith and hold that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And that marriage is the union of one man and one woman before God. And it is within marriage that God gives the gift of sex and the blessing of children. That was his plan from the beginning. And it's a very good thing. We have to stand in the eternal truth of the gospel sign of marriage. We can't cave to cultural pressure because of what we read in John chapter 2. And to stand for marriage, we're going to need courage. it's really helpful for us to see the courage of Jesus in the next verses. Right here in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Let me reread this, since it's been just a little while. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus has has traveled from Cana, it's a hillside village in Galilee, down to Capernaum, it's a seaside village in Galilee, and then up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And we see that Jesus is a faithful pious worshipping Jew. In Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 16, every man in the nation of Israel is commanded to go to Jerusalem 3 times a year to celebrate festivals that remind the people of what God has done for them. For the festival of Passover to commemorate the Lord's deliverance of them from Egypt, for the festival of booths to remember the Lord's provision for them through the wilderness and for the festival of Pentecost to celebrate the Lord's goodness to them in the land of promise. These festivals are important commands. They're important commands instituted of God that that not only form a worship calendar, if you will, but they they form a worldview for the people of God to look through. They're to look at life through the lenses of God's redemption, God's provision, and God's blessed inheritance. This This is how they're supposed to see the reality of the world that God has created and placed them in. And each festival required that they bring sacrifices of various kinds. People who lived nearer Jerusalem could bring their animal sacrifices with them. But that wasn't as practicable for those who lived farther away. So in Deuteronomy chapter 14, a provision was made for those who had longer trips to make. They were allowed to convert their property into money and then when they got to Jerusalem, convert their money back into animals that they could sacrifice if necessary. Now, when Jesus enters the temple, he's not just entering Jerusalem, he's in the temple, he's in the house of God. It's his father's house, and as the father's son, he is the one above all others who has a right to be there and the authority to oversee its rightful operations, but he finds a loud, stinking business taking place. You know what animals do when they stand around for a while. In the temple courtyards, in the courtyards where worshipers are to gather in quiet to pray and to worship God. The money changers and the animal sellers have become an industry conducting business there, which displaces the Lord's business, which should be taking place there. And Jesus is offended. He's incensed at this completely inappropriate use of of his father's house. So he does the cleansing work that the Father sent him to do. He makes a whip and he drives out the animals and their sellers with them. Jesus isn't whipping the people. He's using the cord to drive out the livestock and their owners run out of the temple chasing after them. I have this picture of them trying to herd cats. They look a little silly now once Jesus puts them to fight. He does the cleansing work that the Father sent him to do likewise, he overturns the table and spills the coins of the money changers onto the ground. And he tells them to take these things out of my father's house. <laughs> you can see them falling to their knees, trying to scoop up the money as the coins roll away. Now, Jesus is not out of control. He hasn't flown off the handle in a violent rage. The whip isn't for the people, it's for the livestock. He uses words, saying, take these things away. And he doesn't destroy anything. It's okay for there to be animal sellers and money changers. In fact, Jesus doesn't say anything about their greed. It's just not okay for them to be in the temple. That's not the place. That's an offense. And Jesus tells them why. It's because his father's house is a house of prayer, not a house of trade. I think Jesus is showing great courage here. Not to mention faithfulness to his father and to the people who have come there to pray and to worship. That's the rightful place for that. Now, look at the response. Think about this. Look at the response. Look at the silence. Nobody tries to stop Jesus. Nobody comes to arrest Jesus. Nobody even voices disagreement with what Jesus has done. Nobody says, hey, you can't do that. Not even a hint. The only thing they ask is, him having done it, so by whose authority have you done this thing? When they say, what sign do you show for doing these things? They're asking for some type of prophetic credentials, something that shows that he's a man from God. I think this is amazing. Because it leaves me thinking that they knew that what was happening was wrong. All of them. All along. But nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody, not even the worshipers, were willing to screw up their courage and to open their mouths and to challenge this openly sacrilegious behavior in this obviously sacred place. Except Jesus. Jim Hamilton highlights Jesus' courage here by, by pointing to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 25. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by the peoples and abhorred by the nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Jesus has the courage to stand up and speak righteousness to the wicked, and he delights in it and is blessed for it. We'll pause for a moment and think about this. Are there wicked things happening around you? Are there wicked things happening around you that you know ought to be stopped? Are there wicked things happening in your sphere of influence that you know how to speak righteousness to? Are you making a whip? Or are you looking the other way? You don't have to fly into a rage. You don't have to lose it in anger. In fact, you shouldn't. But there is a way for you to stand up for truth, honesty, virtue. Don't let wickedness go unchecked in your daily life, you righteous man, you righteous woman. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can find an even more personal application to this. This building we're in is not the house of God. It's fun to refer to it that way, but it's not the house of God. It's not where God dwells. This room that we're in is not a sacred sanctuary. It's just a worship hall. We call the room downstairs the fellowship hall. We call the room upstairs the worship hall. We, the church, are the temple of God. It's in us that God dwells. You believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask, is there any inappropriate activity taking place inside of you? See, these businessmen, were, they were necessary for the worship of God. For those who were traveling in from a great distance. But in going about their business, they misused the dwelling place of God. Are there ways? that you as a worshiper for God are, are using your sanctuary for inappropriate things? Are you living your life in inappropriate ways? In inappropriate places? At inappropriate times? Are there things you are doing that someone inhabited by the Spirit of God should not do? Using the dwelling place of God in a way it should not be used. If Jesus were looking on, what would he think? You know, if you're guilty of that, if you're ashamed by that, don't get discouraged. Just repent. Just repent. Ask Jesus to drive that evil out of you because he's powerful to do it. We repent and we ask for cleansing just as David did in Psalm 51. Wash me with the branch, And he'll cleanse you. As Eric said earlier, he's faithful and righteous to do it. To cleanse you of all your iniquities. And he brings delight and blessings to repentant hearts. Those are Jesus' actions in the temple at Passover. But John wants us to go deeper and hear Jesus' words and see Jesus' courage, really. Because the root of his courage is his love for us that is the overflow of his love for the Father. What is revealed about Jesus is is a courageous love here, I think. John gives us an interesting insight from the disciples. When Jesus cleansed the temple, they remembered Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. And they applied that to Jesus. I'm not sure when they remembered this. But I tend to think they remembered it as in verse 22 after his resurrection. Don't know. They might have remembered it at the time. But it seems to me that they might have remembered this along with the other verses after his resurrection. In Psalm 69, David was consumed. He was consumed with a zeal, a passion. To do what? To build the house of God. Now, he was not allowed to do the building, but his life was consumed with gathering the materials and putting every plan in place so that it would be built later by his son Solomon. So all of his effort, David says, all of his energy was eaten up, consumed, for this temple, the house of God. Jesus, as David's heir, has that same zeal and passion but more because it's his father's house. And much, much more for another reason. Think about this. Jesus knows who the temple of God will be in his new covenant administration. It's not the stone building. It's you. It's the people of God. Jesus is going to cleanse a people, and that work is going to physically consume him. His zeal is for you, and his zeal for you is going to consume him on the mount of crucifixion. So let me ask you, what is it that consumes your life? What passions dominate your constant thoughts, your fragile emotions, your daily energy? What is it that you're willing to give your body, give your blood, give your treasure to? And is it worthy of your life? John is showing us the courageous zeal of Christ. Are you gripped by him? There is only one way for people to be delivered from hell's dark hold, and it's Jesus. There is only one person who can bless you with the eternal delight of your soul. And he's standing up in complete truth and righteousness and grace to tell you that it's him. It's Jesus Christ. I want to appeal to you who do not yet believe in Jesus. Believe in him now. Stop wasting your life, the life that God has given to you, on things that are not worthy of your precious life. Come to Jesus, the only one who can save you. Come and see that he alone is worthy of your life. It's in verse 18 that they they finally ask for a sign, and Jesus Jesus gives it to him. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But they couldn't understand it for a couple of reasons that are pretty clear. First, because they did not receive him and would not believe him. John told us in chapter 1 that people are like that. The only temple they would acknowledge is the giant stone temple that Jesus was standing in front of. Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and they go, This temple? That's why they ask and say in, verse 30, in, verse, uh, in, the, in the next verse, hey, it took 46 years to build this temple. Jesus is foolish to say that he can rebuild that. That's crazy, in three days? But that's not the temple Jesus was talking about. And John lets us in on the sign. John lets us in on the sign. He was talking about the temple of his body that would be resurrected on the third day after his, persecu- after his crucifixion. See, they were stuck in their natural reasoning. They couldn't see that Jesus would raise up a new temple of all who believe in him. That's the sign. If you can see that this morning, believe in him. If you can see that in the scriptures, that that's the temple that Jesus is talking about, you who would believe in him, believe in him. The second reason they could not understand was because the sign hadn't happened yet. Right? It was a prophetic sign at that moment, which requires faith to believe, which they don't have. At the Passover, Jesus says, I'm the sign. Remember, it's the Passover. Remember Exodus? Slaughter the lamb without blemish. Paint the door on the doorpost. Death angel passes over those who are obedient because of the blood. It's the Passover, and Jesus says, I will be crucified as the lamb of God. I will be the perfect sacrifice who will die to save God's people from their sin and from death and rescue them in this new exodus. It's veiled language, but it's veiled language on purpose. John has let us in on the sign, but even the disciples won't understand it until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what is it that his disciples would believe after his resurrection? They would believe that Jesus is Himself, the temple of God. That He is the chief cornerstone who is building the temple of God with the living stones who believe in Him. And they believe that Jesus' sacrifice is the blood, has cleansed us of our sin and made us blameless before God. Did you see this imagery? When Jesus cleansed the temple back in verse 15, who, who is it that drove out all of the other animal sacrifices? Who drove out those animal sacrifices? That's why they were there. Drove them right out of the temple. It was Jesus, the once for all sacrifice, who would take away the sins of the world, who drove out all the other lamb? At that moment, Jesus knew, you see, that they would kill him. He knew that. He knew that they would kill him. And so it's with courage that he stepped up and said to them, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. That's our Savior speaking grace and truth. the wrath of God would fall upon him for our sin. Only then would God's justice be satisfied against our sin. And rising on the third day, Jesus would build a body of believers, the body of Christ, his church. John tells us in verse 23 that many believed in his name because of the signs. Which means that Jesus must have done many other signs at this Passover to show his authority. It's it's that group of signs that John says were done, but he hasn't recorded. In fact, nobody has because if they were all recorded, they would would fill the world. The books and the volumes would fill the world. So some some of those signs he had done, people had believed in him. John doesn't tell us what they are. But I think believing in his name because of the signs is something less than the disciples believing in his glory at the wedding in Cana. And even the disciples didn't believe everything all at once. We get uncomfortable when we read verses like verse 24. Though they believed in his name, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Yet there's a word play here in in verses 23 and 24. Uh, The word that describes them, they believed, and the word that describes him, he did not entrust. Believe and entrust. They're actually the same word. So it sounds something like this. Many believed in him, but he did not believe himself to them. That's kind of the word play. Why does God work that way? I don't know. But he does. He's a sovereign God who is all-powerful, and he does as he pleases. We'll see as John's gospel unfolds that many of these who who were attracted to Jesus, who believed in his signs, many of those who were attracted to Jesus would in time walk away from him. At least one would betray him. Some of even his, his 11 close disciples would fail to show courage at critical times or struggle with unbelief. It's not discouraging, verse 24. What's encouraging about it is that Jesus knows who to entrust himself to and who not to. He knows all people. He knows all people need to be born again. Jesus knows who has been given to him by the Father, and he knows who has not. That's his sovereign right Our responsibility and duty is to believe in him. It's really still quite simple. Charles Spurgeon would illustrate it something like this. As you approach the gates of heaven, he would say, there is a sign that says, whosoever will may come. And those who choose to enter those gates would find written on the other side Chosen before the foundation of the world. We may not understand that. But our goal is to believe. Believe in Jesus. What are we to believe besides just to say, believe in Jesus? Well, let me say it a different way. Believe Christ. Christ. We're to believe his new covenant of salvation and be wed to him. We're to believe that he is God with us, not the Old Testament temple. That he is the once for all sacrifice for sin and there is no other. We're to believe in his courageous love for us. And if you would humble yourself and see his glory and trust him completely, just as Mary did, you will find that he has entrusted himself to you. And what are we to do then, having believed Christ in these ways? Well, this morning, let us have the courageous love of Christ. Courageous love for him to listen to him, to do what he says. And courageous love for others to stand for what is true and righteous and good, even as they oppose it. It's the loving thing to do. There is no better story than the true story. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's old covenant promises and then to drink deeply of his new covenant wine. His glory and his salvation. Let John's gospel deepen our faith and strengthen our grip on the gospel and cause us to live with courageous love towards others and worship for the resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and your grace to us. Your grace is unfathomable and your goodness knows no end. Help us to comprehend these true things. Lord, grow our faith. Strengthen our faith. Grow our witness. Strengthen our witness. Purify our soul make us to delight in righteousness. And Father, to stand for Christ such that others would be saved. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.